Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome and happy new year, Solar Warrior. It's another Thursday and I'm so thankful for you. Thanks for lending me your ears. That's your only non-renewable resource, you know, the time that you give to this episode. If you're new here, I sure hope that you'll get a ton of value from this episode, and thanks for giving us a chance to earn your attention. This is part two of the episode that we started earlier in the week with SIA President Abby Hopper. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover, and we get right into some great insights from Abby in this episode. But if you missed part one, I'd highly recommend that you start there, then come back to this one for the rest of the story. Abby really does get into the details on this episode about how we can all help hold President-elect Biden to account for the awesome opportunity before him to leave a lasting clean energy legacy. If you did miss Tuesday's episode, well, that might just be because you're not subscribed to the podcast. If that's true, then stop right now and take just one moment to click that subscribe button inside your podcast player. No, go ahead. I'll, I'll wait. Okay, thanks for doing that as that's going to ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out more than 330 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. And while you're there, you maybe just go ahead and sign up to get notified in your inbox if that's easier for you as well. Hey, for now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to part two with Abby Hopper here on Suncast. Abby, when we left off in the cliffhanger of, of part one, we were talking about the trillions in investment that we expect from the forthcoming President-elect Biden and the administration we anticipate so greatly will usher in a new opportunity wave for us as an industry, but also uh, will help impact climate change in meaningful ways. One of the ways that as an industry, we have a voice through SIA and organizations like SIA are the ability for us to aggregate our thoughts and create a plan that we can present as tangible policy and, and thoughtful provocation for them and directions that we can guide them. You mentioned that you're working hand in hand with the Biden administration and their transition team. One of the ways that I've uh, seen in the last few days in, uh, in November, as we were all sort of getting used to the idea that this might actually be, be coming to fruition is a plan that was put forth by SIA called the first 100 days of the Solar Vision 100-day agenda. I'm going to use some of the text from the document itself, which I'll note is a very digestible document as policy documents go. It is nine pages. Get it in a PDF. We'll link to that in our show notes. Next year is going to bring forth the first new Congress and presidential term in the Solar Plus decade and an opportunity to develop policy frameworks that create hundreds of thousands of jobs and lasting economic prosperity. In order to address this, SIA has created, as I mentioned, the 
Solar Vision 100-day agenda to direct the Biden administration and the 117th Congress. This came back, like I said, in November of 2020, and we, uh, by now, beginning of 2021, are working very diligently to get it in the hands of the policymakers and the administration. Now, quoting from the document, we aim to lay the foundation for a strong, clean energy economy that prioritizes equity and environmental justice, as you mentioned in our previous episode. The solar industry proposes an agenda organized around three strategic principles. Achieving clean energy goals, point one. Achieving clean energy goals and developing comprehensive carbon policy, point two. Investing in clean energy infrastructure and the workforce needed to build it, then point three. Ensuring markets are competitive and remain open to clean energy. Now, the edicts underneath each of these three categories, as it were, are broken down into legislative goals and executive action, but generally they could be encompassed in drive deployment, support underserved communities, and level the playing field. I'd love for you to unpack the legislative and executive action plan under that as you see it and see his role to help usher the first 100 days into a successful opportunity for our industry. Sure. Well, what, a, what an exciting thing to get to talk about, right? Like, how are we, how are we, how can we be the most impactful and how can we accelerate deployment in a way that benefits all of our communities and all of our fellow citizens? So, um, as we think about sort of that first bucket, one of the things we talked about earlier was around certainty. And so we are asking on the legislative side for President Biden to deliver bold legislation to Congress that would call for a five-year extension of the solar investment tax credit, a permanent refundability option for the ITC, and a standalone storage ITC. So as we think about, you know, how do we create durability and predictability? stable tax policy. So that's sort of one thing that we really very much like him to do. Um, As we think about sort of that infrastructure, we both need to build the infrastructure and build the workforce to deploy our energy source. Um, There's certainly things around legislative pieces around transmission, certainly FERC work that can be done around transmission and easing the permitting process, but also the workforce training. We were really supportive last Congress on some pretty comprehensive workforce training bills that include issues around equity and justice, include communities and workers that are transitioning out of the fossil fuel um, industry and really being very clear about their pathways to success in the renewable energy industry. That's, I think, a, a, such an important piece of all of this. We also think that, you know, that there could be some um, agency work around that. So this is sort of more the executive order, the administration priorities, building that infrastructure on public lands, making sure that there is, you know, a transmission siting on public lands is reliable, it's predictable, all of those kinds of things. And then last, but certainly not least, is really around competition, right? We talk a lot about competition. We want to have a seat at the table. We want to, you know, have fair rules so that we can compete. We, we think that sort of the, not just the energy system, like not just the infrastructure, the wires and the poles, but the policy constructs were built for a different era. And so we need to make sure that the, in addition to the, the infrastructure of the grid and making sure that it can like, technically handle a different way in which we're producing energy and using energy, we also need to make sure the policy construct allows for a different way that we're using energy. And so some of that is things like the RTOs, making sure that the RTOs are solving for like the product or the outcome and not just 
premised on fuel sources or thinking about at FERC, making sure that PURPA remains an opportunity for us to access markets that are held by monopolies. And so there's a lot of examples on the competitive side, um, but we think there's just so much that this administration can do to rapidly accelerate the deployment of clean energy. And we even came up with what we call, it's sort of cute, but the six for 46, the six things we think that the oh, president-elect should do on day one. <laughs> uh-huh, that's great. Day one. Here we go. Yep. Yeah, day one. I, I think he's got a lot to do on day one, but we, we think on day one, he should do the following six things. We think that he should issue an executive order to remove the 201 tariffs. Like, done. We think on day one, he should establish a climate czar at the White House and that that person and that office should have environmental justice embedded in their DNA and sort of view all of these questions around deployment and opportunity with through the lens of justice. We think on day one, he should send that bold legislation that I talked about to Congress. There's no need to wait. There's no need to wait. We know exactly what's needed. Um, and he should send that up the hill, up, the, up, the, up to Capitol Hill. We do think on day one, he should send legislation with investments in domestic manufacturing, right? We're going to take away the tariffs and make actual progress on investing in domestic manufacturing. And then the last two things we think he should do, number five and number six, appointments matter. They matter so much. He should appoint a secretary of the interior who is committed to the responsible development and the quick development of renewable energy on public lands. And he should appoint FERC commissioners that understand this changing landscape we talked about and that value competition And most importantly, maybe not most importantly, but very importantly, respect state autonomy and state's ability to set their own clean energy goals. So whatever else he chooses to do on day one, we think that those six things should be on the on the list. So I've got executive order, move 201 tariff, uh, establish climate czar, two, three, send the legislation up to Capitol Hill. I presume that's the legislation from the 100 day plan, the legislation that's outlined in that nine page document. That's three. Four, send legislation with investment in domestic manufacturing. That's separate. And five, appoint a secretary of interior. Okay. And is six the FERC commissioners? Yes. Ah, okay. So appointments are five and six. Very good. One of the things that I'm curious to understand, there's a lot that we could probably unpack. I'm sure we could do an entire episode just dedicated to this little old topic. But I'm keen to understand if if it is our role as industry vis-a-vis our organizational uh, affiliations like SIA, SIPA, and the state organizations to create dockets, suggestions? And if so, who's taking that action? How can we give input on who's being selected, who we're nominating, who we think are good for these roles? I think there are a lot of different pathways to provide that information. We certainly are being asked by the transition teams who we think would be good to serve in some of those roles. And so we, you know, solicit information from our members and from our board, certainly. I'm a big believer that practitioners of the art of renewable energy deployment are many of the right people for these roles. Academics are lovely, but they've never had to actually get something built. <laughs> and, and we're talking about building. So I, I have a little bit of a personal bias in that front. Uh, there are other groups, the environmental groups have certainly put forward names of people, the Clean Energy for Biden 
effort has been collating names and allowing people to sort of self-nominate, which I think is great. You know, we shouldn't be shy. If you want to serve, do not be shy. Um, reach out to in all of those places. What pushback would we expect from an executive order to remove the 201 tariff? We would expect it from some, but not all, of the companies that have um, made investments here after the 201. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm not going to name them by name, but you know who they are. <laughs> I think we might also find um, pushback from some of the other domestic manufacturers who are not covered by the 201 tariff, but who see it perhaps as a competitive advantage. Within the context and construct of the climate czar, you mention uh, a term that I want to make sure that we are adequately defining or at least clarifying within the context of how you intended to be used, environmental justice. Can you unpack what that means within the context of uh, how we need to think about environmental justice? Because I'm sure our friends in, in, in climate justice and, and environmental advocacy may or may not be aligned with our definition of environmental justice. I just want to make sure even perhaps for those who haven't really thought about what environmental justice means, how does that, how does that matter to us as an industry and to see as an organization? It's an important question to really wrestle with. So, and this is my, how I use it, how I use it, how Abby <laughs> sure. Hopper uses it. Um, yeah. You know, I've come to understand the way in which sort of our energy sources and our energy siting and our energy permitting has really resulted in, in another term, environmental racism, right? So if we think about where fossil fuel and carbon emitting generators are located, they're, nor- they're often located near low-income communities of color. And so that is a thing that happens. And because of that, there's a significant health impacts, right? Greater rates of asthma, greater rates of respiratory issues. And so that's just a fact like that is that has happened and if you you travel around the country i used to travel down to new orleans a lot because of my old job and there's a place called um with toxic toxic grow or you know that's where all of the oil refineries are and the communities around them have been really um impacted by the by those the emissions from there so that's sort of where we're, where, what is, has happened, right? So it's recognizing the reality of that and then being very intentional going forward in both our own siting around solar projects and renewable energy projects, making sure that the communities that they are being located in are a part of that, maybe a part of the ownership structure, maybe a part of the workforce that they are the solution that that community wants rather than sort of having outsiders come in and say, like, have we got a deal for you? But really understanding sort of the sense of place and that people have some right to to help define what takes place in their own communities. And so I think that's a part of it for me. I think also to the environmental justice is really looking to solve some of those historic harms, right? Those, those health impacts and those other things. And so that's all a part of it. Obviously, you know, who's at the table who we're listening to, who we hold out as experts on all of these issues matters. I don't know that that's environmental justice so much, but it's certainly part of that equity piece that I'm particularly focused on. Obviously, 2020 has been a year where equity, diversity, inclusion, BLM, transition of workers who in our industry will be left behind. And I refer to the energy industry, Mm -hmm. not just the renewable energy industry. I'm encouraged that one of the cornerstones is this focus on 
community, a focus on the kind of justice and equity that you're referring to, part of, in fact, you know, the second cornerstone of these three legs is workforce needed to build it, right? Investing in that workforce. Well, part of what SIA has been focused on for a while with Solar Foundation is not only understanding the workforce, cataloging, what does that workforce look like and how is it, in fact, growing and demonstrably the one of the fastest growing work sectors, job sectors in the United States. Would you help contextualize for us what it means to invest in the workforce for 2021 and beyond? Sure. If we are successful in our goals, that's going from about 3% of energy generation from solar now to 20%, we're going to more than double our workforce, right? Go from yeah. about 250,000 yep. to 600,000. 600. So, yeah, we talked about that in the first episode. That's right. Exactly. And so there's a, so there's a bunch of capacity we have to build, right? Who are those people? What skills do they need? Where do they get training? Where are their gaps? I hear from my companies a lot about the challenge they have finding skilled workers or finding people that can, can just do the work. Um, oftentimes, as you know, we're building in remote areas or we're building in places where there might not be a workforce in the community. And so how do you find local talent and how do you train them? And so what do we need? And so there are, like on the legislative front, the pieces of legislation that we have been supportive of provide funding to either local communities or to sort of through nonprofits to provide that kind of capacity building so that there are, you know, people that know how to install solar panels and technicians that know how to do that and engineers that know how to do that. And on the O&M side, right, they know how to keep them up and running and um, performing at peak peak capacity. Um, there's a whole effort around veterans, like leaving the military and coming into the solar industry. That's one of the ways in which DOE is helping to support that. We work on that in partnership with the Solar Foundation. Um, and also being really clear that like communities that have been left behind, like people in parts of the country where the energy transition is happening fast around them and their coal plants may be shutting down, right? Targeting those geographic areas and also some demographic areas, right? Like people of color, we need more people of color employed in the solar industry. And so what kind of partnerships can we, can we create with H- uh, historically black colleges and universities, right? And sort of the American Association of Blacks and Energy, like where, how do we use some of the infrastructure that's already built and build those relationships so that we can have pipelines. So that, there's a whole bunch of that exciting stuff around workforce. As the person whose job is to point the, point the vehicle, right, and help people get around these, it's not your job to dictate all of these policies, to build all of these programs. How do you think about resourcing, in particular, this area of workforce? Is this like a separate set-aside area within SIA that you have staff that's actively day-to-day working on it? We do have someone who is actively day-to-day working on our efforts around diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice in partnership with our board. So our board has identified a couple of priorities, right? The, the issue is so big that at times that you can just like, where, what, what's, what's my next right step? Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to focus on. I don't. And I think a lot of us just as humans become a bit paralyzed. And so we have identified four specific things that we're trying to accomplish that I think will be helpful to the industry, the tools the industry can use. And so she, my colleague, works on those. That's a majority of her job. Um, and then we do have someone who is working on that grant, that I, the DOE grant that, that gets 
veterans leaving um, service and into the solar space. And so uh, it's a whole other person on our staff that's focused on that workforce development. But I do think it's an area ripe for opportunity, right? There's clearly going to be a need to identify this and help build more capacity. Do you, don't mean to put you on the spot, have those four specific things top of mind that Mm -hmm. your dedicated person is working on? I'd love to just be able to catalog those here for those who aren't even familiar, this is an initiative internally at yeah. Sure. Just to give a little background on sort of how our thinking evolved, um, as we, you know, after the murder of George Floyd in the summer, we really grappled with sort of what, what do we do, right? What do we do as people, <laughs> as humans, uh, but what do we do as a trade association, right? Like we're not a social justice, we're not we're political, little p, but we're not, you know, our job is our job is to represent businesses in solar. And so mm-hmm. what's our lane in this conversation? And so we, we, I had a, about a thousand and one conversations with companies, with activists, with other leaders, and, and we were all struggling with the same question. And I turned to my friend, uh, Paula Glover at the American Association of Blacks and Energy. I'm such a fan. And a, and a friend. Um, and she and I had this really honest and interesting conversation about literally what is our lane. Um, and she put out something that was really impactful to me and helped guide what, what our priorities were. Because it was really about businesses and sort of as businesses, what can we do to be impactful? And so from that, uh, we kind of created our own mission statement of what we were trying to accomplish and then identified the tasks. The, task, the tasks are really the four. One is to create kind of best practices for companies. I have had, I have fielded so many calls from CEOs that have said, I want to do something around these issues in my company. What do I do? Do I hire consultants? Do I, you know, have a diversity day? Like, what do I do? And so, giving our companies some really clear guidance around best practices. We did it on the hiring front. So we have that on our website, but it's more holistic. Right? So culturally, what are things you can do to, to instill this in your company? I've gotten numerous phone calls. Hey, uh, we want to hire a black owned business. Do you know any bankers who are, you know, people of color? Are there any women owned businesses to do my fill in the blank work? And we realized there was a gap, right? Like we do not have that database for the renewable energy industry of um, black and women owned companies. And so we're, we are working on building that resource and building that um, offering for companies. So obviously it would benefit the, you know, people that are in the directory, black and women owned companies or people of color owned companies, but also everyone else who's, who wants to be intentional about their spending, but doesn't quite know what to do. So that's number two. Number three is around board diversification, both internally. So if you pull up the CEO website and you click on my board, I don't even think we have pictures now that I think about it. (laughs) But if you knew all of their names, you would realize they're uh, very male and very white. I mean, that's just the reality. I like to I like to talk about the reality, and that is the reality. And so we are making, we have made, and are continuing to really struggle with how do we bring more diversity to our board. We're talking about a mentorship opportunities so that younger people or people earlier in their careers and people of color can 
be mentored by the SIA board members and really build their own leadership experience and leadership potential. Uh, but we're also talking about our company's boards, right? Because ours is not unique in its homogeny. Um, I think we see that replicated throughout the solar industry. And so again, trying to build a resource of best practices, candidates, like thinking about how do companies diversify their boards? Because we all know that diverse leadership teams make better decisions. And last but not least, number four is really on the policy front, right? So how do we bring these issues of environmental justice and climate justice into our advocacy work, right? What policies are we advocating for? How do we partner with communities that have been impacted so that they have a voice in this conversation? And then sort of what, what are we going out to try and accomplish? Because that's, I mean, that's our sweet spot, right? That's our, that's our product is policy outcomes. And so how do we build all this into our product of policy outcomes? So it, it, sometimes it feels like, oh my gosh, that's so much. I can't even imagine how are we going to get it done. And sometimes it feels like it's a teeny tiny little drop in a big, big bucket, but at least it's something, right? I like, I just, I want to keep moving and making progress on these things. That is amazing. And I actually, I also want to find ways to help our industry and our community within Suncast follow along, if nothing else. Many uh, suffer from analysis paralysis or or really unknowing how to take action. I, as always, will link in the show notes to a lot of the stuff, including the board members uh, that Abby just referred to. I'll link to a page that is easy to and quick to get to from our show notes of who the board members are, if you're interested, uh, of what's going on there. Hey, Solar Warriors, have you gotten your ticket yet to this year's most exclusive and exciting event? That's right. I'm excited to announce that on January 20th, we're going to be hosting, along with Clean Energy for Biden, the clean energy for america inaugural ball this is a virtual celebration of all our achievements in 2020 with this election this celebration is truly in gratitude for all of your hard work solar warriors in electing president-elect biden and vice president-elect harris to fight for our clean energy future you can join us for this exciting first ever event that's going to bring together industry leaders clean energy advocates and amazing exciting guests for an evening of celebration tickets are just a hundred bucks for general admission and they will surely sell out so be sure not to sleep on this offer there's going to be red carpet entertainment star-studded after party you can get all the details as well as lock down your ticket and see other levels and sponsorship opportunities by going to mysuncast.com and clicking on the ce4b logo that's find the ce4b logo at mysuncast.com see you on the 20th so as we keep things moving here, I have some fun questions from the Suncast tribe. I have been trying to involve more folks who help inspire in me more thoughtful questions, or if I'm outside of my wheelhouse and sometimes in an interview like this, I kind of feel like I am. So I'm going to jump into and, and share with you some thoughts from our, our industry. Many are friends uh, and known by you, so I'll call them by name, but I think that there are some fun things that I am certain you'll have interesting insights or, or responses for. Uh, our friend Lauren Glickman over at RenewCom asks, what have you been doing to prioritize self-care and wellness during this dumpster fire of a year? <laughs> oh, Lauren. <laughs> I would say two things. One is moving my body. Like I, I bought a Peloton early on in covid 
And I get on that Peloton almost every single day. Anyone who's around me knows that I talk about it incessantly. It's probably only interesting to me. Um, I, I have been exploring my city. I moved my body by getting outside and going for long walks. I don't think I went for a single long walk the whole time. I mean, it just not, it was never part of my routine. Like I'm too busy. And I live right near the, if you follow me on Twitter, you know this, I live right near the Washington Cathedral. And so I go there all the time. It's closed. I can't go inside, but just being on the grounds is incredibly meaningful to me. So I do that. So that's one, move my body. And the second is I have deepened my friendships during this time in ways that I, again, I think because I was always moving, like always on the road, always traveling, either coming or going or trying to figure out what time zone I was with. No, I didn't have as much space for sort of that regular engagement with my friends. And so even though I'm, I mean, I'm still quarantining, right? Like I'm sitting here in my house. I have used a lot of this technology to really deepen those friendships. And those two things have kept me well. Does that look like a Zoom with a healthy glass of wine and uh, a friend, uh, maybe even a, a CIA board member who also loves wine and lives not far from DC, jibber jabbering about what's happening in the day. <laughs> you, do you, you knew what I did on Saturday night? <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, I'm watching you. I'm watching you. And no, I haven't talked to her. And, and a select few listening to this will know exactly who we're talking about. I've enjoyed like Zoom calls and like, just last night, I did a Zoom call with a friend of mine who's in Colombia, and we just like were sipping whiskey, chatting, and it's like, this is what we'd be doing, man, if we could hang out together. So why not leverage technology? I think this is a really good one, and I'll credit Lauren for a question that I think is going to show up in probably every interview moving forward. So thank you, Lauren, for that. Uh, Lauren has, has an indelible thumbprint on Suncast for those who regularly listen, because she brought such people as... Uh, uh, as John Powers to my uh, awareness and attention and, and Chad, uh, gosh, uh, for my first time to go into Burlington, thanks to Lauren. It's easy for folks to think, listening to the story we picture, the picture we portrayed in episode one, you've had a picture perfect life, storybook life. <laughs> Sorry. We, we, we know that all success is fraught with failure. And Instagram and Twitter usually only get to display, you know, our walks at the cathedral. In a year that is likewise fraught with failure, how do you handle failure? Well, first of all, I have I am both incredibly blessed and have had a charmed life and have faced hard things. You know, I have failed many times, um, and uh, you know, I won't. I'm happy. Anyone wants to call me, I'd be happy to go down the list. For me, the most important part is to learn from it, like figure out what happened, right? Like, what what did I not see, or what did I what what did I ignore, or what wasn't I aware of that I needed to know um, that led to that? So, for example, when I was at Boehm, um, there was a really big controversial issue, and. I just don't I, like, I don't feel like we handled it particularly elegantly or well. And partly because I just never had enough information. Like I just got information and dribs and drabs that never really, never really had a strategy or a comprehensive approach to how we we're going to solve this problem, which meant it just like morphed along and this ickiness for months and months and months. So I learned a lot. I mean, Dan or any of my team will tell you, like, I am always like, okay, what's the strategy? What's the plan? What's the timeline? What are we trying to accomplish? Let's go. 
I don't like to live in that murky, but I had to live in the murky and just be like, oh, that was bad. <laughs> Any tools that you've developed by way of reflection or otherwise that you now sort of dip into your bag of, of tools and, and say, okay, this didn't work. Maybe, and it could be as simple as I had a bad day uh, and I don't know why, and that's failure or this really key piece of legislation that we thought had all the buy-in it needed is not moving forward. Anything that you have as a mental model or a tool that you would say, oh, I do this thing now beyond, beyond like just the reflection and looking for blind spots. I talk about the hard things. I name them and acknowledge them and sometimes get uncomfortable and the people around me are uncomfortable, but I'd rather deal with the difficult or uncomfortable situation and sort of figure out how we're going to solve it or even just exist with it than pretend, right? I think so many of us would just rather avoid not talk about a difficult situation. And that's worked for me zero times, yeah. <laughs> zero times so, has it worked. <laughs> so true. Personal life, professional life, doesn't matter. I, it doesn't work. I had a mentor once who said, I want to know the good things fast and the bad things faster. <laughs> Uh, which is important in your twenties. That's a really important message to hear, right? Is don't hold the bad things back from me. It will only get worse if I don't know about them. So let's, if you bring them to me, I can help you mitigate and create risk remediation plans. So Jigger asked, when we look at consolidation industry, it happens both at the corporate level. I'm ad-libbing a little bit on what Jigger says, but I'm just giving some context. It happens at the corporate level. It happens at the uh, association level. It's a natural evolution. Wind, by its very nature of having gotten PTO and a whole lot of other legislation years before solar and gotten a lot of traction, momentum years before solar, by all rights, has had a better lobbying effort uh, early in its, uh, well, certainly in the last uh, two decades than solar. Just did something really interesting. OEA, the association that basically represents wind, uh, has formed a new trade group called the American Clean Power Association. Now, we could have probably a whole other discussion about just that, uh, that association. I don't want to do that right now. Jigger's question specifically is, it's clear the American Clean Power Association is really just focused on utility scale. So who's fighting for DG? It is clear that SIA has, has fought for DG, will continue to fight for DG, will continue to fight for utility scale solar and solar plus storage, will continue to fight for community and commercial solar and solar plus storage. Um, I think one of the differentiators between us and the new trade association is not, re- is, is not sort of along the utility scale versus distributed lines, but it's really about competition. And as I said, that's one of the key tenets of our of our 100-day plan, but it's also a key tenet of SIA, right? We advocate for open markets, for fair competition, for all players to have a chance to compete. Um, We do not advocate on behalf of monopolies or regulated utilities. Um, And I think that is a pretty important differentiator. Um, Doesn't mean there won't be times when distributed and utility scale and SIA and ACPA are all aligned um, and we've identified some of those and we'll We'll go fight those battles together when it makes sense. Um, but when it doesn't make sense, SIA will, will continue to represent solar and the solar storage industry in an incredibly uh, voracious and aggressive way. So I, um, I hope, I, I trust that the industry knows that. Um, if, they, if they have any questions, they can uh, send me a note and I'll be happy to reassure them. But you know, that's what me and my entire team wake up thinking about every single day. How do we create more business opportunities for any 
size solar company in our country. That's my job. What can the lessons learned from other industries that you've participated in, that you've observed, whom your friends have come from, inform mm-hmm. us about the path for SIA specifically and solar broadly? And tag on to that, if we learned anything specifically from the Obama administration, that'd be helpful in the administration that we hope is about to take the helm. I'll start the industry side first. You know, I think we've seen a fair number of um, comp- like industries, I think about sort of the fracking industry and a little bit of the boom and bust cycle there in addition to the the demand, but also the company side, right? And the corporate side, like, you know, people that were wildcatters and and had big, 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 exciting things happen and then like gone. Um, So I don't want to do that. I don't think that's a healthy way to build an industry. And so predictability and certainty kind of in policy and in markets, I think, could help us avoid some of that. Um, I think on the SIA front, if we remain sort of too frozen. Like we can't be frozen. We have to continually evolve as our industry evolves. So as business models change, as technologies like solar become important, as things like equity become such a critical sort of element, we have to be nimble enough to incorporate those. Um, the trade associations I see that are not um, that are not thriving are those that are sort of steeped in the way they've always done it. Anyone who knows me knows that's like my least favorite statement ever. Uh-huh. <laughs> I really like change. And I think if we think about the Obama administration, you know, they did so many things right and really had um, an incredible like, lift to the renewable energy industry. But four more years have passed, right, since since they were in office. We, we were in office. Um, and so thinking about, okay, well, what do we really need? What does the industry need now, right? And we are more mature, our technology is more mature, our financing structures are more mature, the investor community is more comfortable with our product and our projects. And so um, we need we need people that can help with sort of that rapid deployment. And that's why I talked earlier about sort of that, um, my bias towards practitioners of deployment, right? People that know how to build stuff. Um, I think we can, if we think about who we're putting into appointments and how we're prioritizing sort of the commercial nature of our business, that is, a, as a, I think, something that we can use the great work of the Obama administration and build on for the Biden administration. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. I often think about this because the best teachers we ever have in college were in business school, people who had run businesses and who had held the job of marketing. But it, by its very nature is uh, an exclusionary metric or yardstick because a practitioner is already making money out in the marketplace doing these things. They're either A, unwilling to tell others how they're doing it, or B, unwilling to slow down long enough to to like go help (laughs) put market forces in place that will help their competitors catch up. I think that it's really difficult uh, and it's a fun challenge for us to embrace. How do we get practice? How do we incentivize practitioners to want to participate in the leveling of the playing field when by its very nature, capitalism is built around these uh, level playing fields. So that's something just as an observation, I'd be interested to hear how the community responds to that as well. What was the best piece of advice that you got when you took your job at SIA and bonus points, if you can share who it was from one. And I got this from numerous people. One was that being a CEO is a very lonely job. And it was a good piece of advice because I found it to be completely false, right? It's not how I live my life. It's not how I lead. It's not how I want to be. Like I have a team that, that I work hand in hand with. And so 
I didn't find it to be to be true, but I, I sort of cited as an important piece of advice because it really made me examine what kind of environment am I going to create? I, I could live and lead in a way that that's the case. I just choose yeah. not to. So sort of the, the, proving, the proving the opposite was important mm-hmm. for me. But the other one was just, you know, everyone has an opinion about what I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the majority of them feel very free to share it with each other and sometimes with me. And I, I can't pay attention to that, right? I have to know like what my internal motivation is and sort of who I answer to and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, I'm super open to conversation and criticism and sort of course correction, but I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about sort of what the, the collective thinks. I, oh, yeah, um, don't I be spend a lot of time focused. Yes, I spend a lot of time focused on our goals. Yeah, it's also interesting because you are, uh, hired into a role where your job is to take action on what the collective literally has asked to do. So I can imagine that some of the, the energy Twitter universe might have fun with that position. And, um, but I actually do agree with the piece of advice, which is you can't allow, you can't allow the tide to move you, right? You've got to be anchored to something. And that something is what the collective helps you discern and then like, Absolutely. if you're buffeted by, if you're buffeted by the next hurricane, like you got to be anchored to something. What turned yeah. out? I mean, let me just, I just, go, let me just add yeah, one thing. I don't want anyone to, to misinterpret what I mean by that. Like, sure. I don't care what anyone thinks. I mean, like in May of 2019, I put a hundred people, hundred solar entrepreneurs and executives and thought leaders in a room. And we created this vision for 20% by 2030, right? We created this roadmap for how we're going to get there. And so that is the collective, right? These leaders in our industry that were so free with their time and their expertise, and we created this joint vision. And that's what that's what I, I'm tied to, right? Is how do I execute against this vision and not sort of have a really thick skin? <laughs> I have to have a really thick skin in this shop because everyone has an opinion about how I'm executing against that. And like I said, I'm happily will hear it, but it does not um, it does not define who I am in a sentence, what turned out better than you expected? Mm, my children. That's a great answer. <laughs> uh, in uh, along the lines of workforce, there's a lot of vet, vets and others that uh, folks from oil and gas, 125,000 plus who are now displaced. What advice would you give someone who's looking to move into the solar industry from one of those sectors? What skills are sorely lacking in our industry right now as we scale to maturity? I mean, what I hear from my companies is that they really need skilled labor, right? They need people that are willing to go in the field and build projects. And so I think a ton of those, that skill set from oil and natural gas is incredibly transferable, right? They're not, that they, we are, they're pretty technical skills. They're pretty um, like, uh, it's sort of hands-on positions, but there's great opportunity, a huge opportunity to be there. I'll throw this one in from the crowd. Uh, thanks again to Lauren for helping source us. Elon Hall asked, it's one of my favorite questions. It'll probably also show up. If you could have dinner with one person living or dead, who would it be and why? Mm, I think that um, I would really want to have dinner with Michelle Obama. I think um, she has a sense of confidence and grace that I respect so much. I think she's so smart and so thoughtful and yet does not appear to be driven by ego. 
I have incredible respect for the partnership she has with her husband, which at least from the outside really appears to be a partnership. Um, her mom has lived, I think, and helped her with her, her girls. And, you know, I have a ton of respect for her parenting. And so like, you know, there are lots of business leaders and political leaders and all of those kind of people that I'd love to chit chat with. But, um, as the kind of a woman that I would want to sort of model the way I am after she's, she would be the one I would choose. What book or books or, or learning tools or tomes have you given away or recommended the most and why? So it's not a business book. Um, uh, I totally have gifted, I have gifted love warrior by Glennon Doyle to numerous, numerous friends. Have you mm. read it? I have not. She writes about, she writes about being human, basically. So it, it is a series, uh, it's a story, it's an autobiographical story about her journey in life and in mothering and in being in a relationship and sort of her own faith and discovery. And it, it I'd heard about it for a little while from my girlfriends and I forget when I decided to read it, but it was one of those moments where I just thought like, oh my gosh, this woman I identify with so much of what she's saying. She just put it out. She just released a new book called Untamed that I've also read that is incredibly impactful. Fantastic. Well, I get a lot of pushback, as you might suspect, from uh, mostly from females who don't identify with warrior and the tribal mindset. And I totally get that. So I hope that they will at least embrace Glennon Doyle and her uh, affinity for the word warrior in her book, Love Warrior, which has now been recommended by... Uh, by Abby here. Do you have a morning or perhaps an evening routine that anchors you? Mm, I try to work out every morning. That um, is is been my habit for a very long time. Um, now that we're still quarantining, that the time has gotten a little later. It used to be my alarm was set for five twenty every morning. Wow! Um, and I was working out by six, like either a spin class or a core power class or something. Now that I don't have to commute and I have my Peloton in my house, I don't have to get up quite that early, but the, the moving my body first thing in the morning, like clears my head and provides me with the space to think and space to reflect on what the day is going to bring. Um, I have zero, zero habits at night. <laughs> That's not true. I read every night before I go to sleep. It's oh, wow, really? I really fall asleep. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a really my, important <sighs> habit, by the way. Yeah. How about, how yeah, cool is that? Is. is it mostly, is it mostly fiction at night? Always fiction at night. Not always, but mostly fiction at fantastic. night. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so I hear that you're moving a lot. Your routine is to get exercise in. Uh, and I often get meditation, exercise, et cetera. Any secret obsession that m people maybe wouldn't know about and that maybe also similarly anchors you and your tradition? <laughs> in addition to my secret obsession with maps that we talked about. <laughs> That's right, right. Um, <laughs> no, I, I am obsessed with Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And it oh is my God, Dunkin a Donuts. part of my morning routine. Um, going to get my coffee is definitely part of my routine. Absolutely. And, and I've learned, I've, I, I should probably keep track, but everywhere I go, everywhere I travel, I try to find Dunkin' Donuts. And I, um, they have really good merchandise. Like they have really good merchandise. And so I go into every Dunkin' Donuts I see because I'm curious whether they have 
some piece of merchandise I don't already own. So I have beach towels, I have hats, I have shirts, I have lip gloss, I have candles, I have Christmas ornaments. Like it's a little wackadoo, but I am amazing. I just love me some Dunkin' Donuts. There you go. So if you want to get on Abby's good side, send her a map of the Dunkin' Donuts locations and a bunch of stick pins so she can keep track of where she's been. I love that. <laughs> uh, so good. So good. All right. I did go well, out of my way once in Boston to go see the first Dunkin' Donuts ever. Like, did it meet I, your expectations? I, I a, uh, they were missing a marketing opportunity, in my opinion. I would have oh. bought any anything they would have sold that said, like, the original Dunkin' Donuts, but there was nothing to be had. My wife and I did the same for In-N-Out in California. Did you? Yeah, but yeah. To, their, to their credit, they bought a building and now created the In-N-Out Museum, which is beside the original In-N-Out. And that is amazing. The only marketing opportunity lost was that it was closed while we were there. So we didn't get to go. I was, I was <laughs> like, I want to buy the big paperclip or whatever. I want to buy a hat, whatever yeah. all stuff, right? I love how people get obsessed with, with things like that. But they are anchors, right? Like I know anywhere in California, I can land and go get a burger at In-N-Out. And it feels like I've been there before. So I yeah. love that. Um, I, so this book, I'm reading this book right now. Oh. It's around the corner. Of, can you see it? Yeah. Around the corner to around the world, a dozen lessons I learned running Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> oh my goodness. I want to hear your book review on that. Okay. Promise. All right. All right. Let's wrap this really quickly here. Uh, people, as you mentioned, follow you on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle? Oh my gosh. What is it? Is it, is it Hopper okay. Abbey? Is that what it is? I have the hardest time finding you on Twitter <laughs> because it doesn't play to the, like, the Twitter right rules. Now? Um, it is, it's Hopper Abbey. That's right. Hopper underscore Abbey, maybe. Oh no, just Hopper Abbey. I just, we, we will link in your, are you active on Insta? Are you on the gram? No, no, no. Mm -mm. My kids told me I couldn't be. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. (laughs) Totally fair. Uh, My kids aren't old enough yet to, to ixnay the the gram, uh, for me. (laughs) All right. So we'll, we'll link to your Twitter and, and you are pretty active on Twitter. I love, uh, we, we engage there occasionally. Uh, obviously we'll link to all the different, uh, parts of the SIA universe, but let's end today's, uh, and this week's amazing journey through the life and times of Abby Hopper with our final question, the bold prediction. What in your crystal ball are predictions for SIA, the solar industry in 2021, a Biden administration. What do you see happening that nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Yeah, I think that um, SIA as an organization will be larger and more powerful than it ever has been. I think that the solar deployment is going to exceed all of our projections. I think that we will rapidly get to that 20%. It's not going to take us to 2030. And I think that these issues around environmental justice and equity will be centered in our work and will be a meaningful part of our conversation so that it is not simply kind of an afterthought or something we talk about on the side, but absolutely um, inherent in every conversation we have. I think that will all happen. I think it will happen quickly. I think we have this um, opportunity to really capitalize on the Biden administration who's made all of those things a priority and we are well poised to make that happen. Abby Hopper is president and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association. And as these things take place, we will be following it here on Suncast and on her Twitter feed, of course. A special, <laughs> special thank you to Dan Witten, Jen Bristol, Lauren Glickman, Jigger Shaw, and so many other voices who helped uh, 
inform and coordinate this effort. And last but certainly not least, Abby, thank you for uh, this epic interview and the time that you've contributed. I know that your time is busy. So truly from the bottom of my heart and ours, thank you. It was such a pleasure, Nico. I look forward to seeing you soon in person. Likewise. I can't wait. I'm bringing you some maps. And I'll bring you some Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> We definitely have our work cut out for us, Clean Energy Champions. I'm so grateful for Abby and the SIA team for the hard work they do on our behalf and for also taking time out of their busy schedules to help the Suncast tribe better understand how we can take action alongside them. While it looks like we've won the battle, the war is far from over, my friends. So go read up on the administration's plans and SIA's 6 for 46 is a good place to start, might I add. You can lean in after that to your state and federal legislators so that they are clear that now is the time to take action on climate change and our clean energy future. You can find that 6 for 46 document along with the other stuff that we mentioned here in this episode and the social media links, book recommendations, and more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And by the way, that's also where you can find the link to register for the party of the year, the Clean Energy for America inaugural ball. Click on the CE for B logo and go register before that early bird deadline is up. And if you'd like to sponsor the event, shoot me a note, nico at mysuncast.com. But hurry up, sponsorship deadline is January 10th. I do hope to see you on January 20th. This is going to be an amazing, fantastic party with thousands of other clean energy warriors just like you. And I hope you'll tune in next week for my conversation with my friend Matt Hankey of New Energy Equity and also the launch of our Community Solar 101 series, which will fill that Tactical Tuesday slot for the rest of January. Remember, you are what you listen to, and we're going to have an amazing year. I'm so happy that you're starting it with us right here. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>